You are listening to Sparking Wholeness with Erin Carey, where we talk about all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome everyone to the Sparking Wholeness podcast. I am so excited to introduce you to Dr. Patrick Wanis. He helps people rapidly change their behavior as a human behavior and relationship expert. Wanis has developed SRTT therapy, which stands for subconscious rapid transformation technique and is now teaching it to other practitioners. Wanis has also developed multiple online psychological and behavioral assessments on emotional intelligence, empathy, mindfulness, relationships relationship breakups, self-defeating behavior, individual core values, and authenticity. His clientele ranges from celebrities and CEOs to housewives and teenagers, CNN, BBC, Fox News, MSNBC, and major news outlets worldwide consult, consult (laughs) Wannis for expert insights and analysis on relationships, sexuality, human motivation, trauma, communication, body language, and persuasion. Over 5 million people have read Wannis' books in English and Spanish, which is incredible. So thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for the opportunity. You are extraordinarily efficient. You speak so quickly. (laughs) Well, I I think that's where I got into a little trouble with my words there. I was speaking a little too quickly. (laughs) I'm just ready to get to the good stuff. I think that's what it is. I'm excited to hear what you have to share. And we were speaking a little bit before about the topic of trauma and how a lot of people don't realize that what they have experienced is actually trauma. So can can you give us a definition of, of what you believe trauma is? The simplest definition of trauma is a real or perceived threat. It's your response, your body and your mind's response to a real or perceived threat. So if someone's screaming at me and I'm a child, that, it, that could be traumatic because it's a perceived threat. And if a parent hits me, then obviously that's a real threat because my survival is in danger. So trauma is our response <clears throat> to thinking that we're in real danger or experiencing real danger. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for children, what is it under the age of seven? Is that where they're try- their world is really shaping? That's kind of the age of awareness right? Where, where all of these things that happen to them really play a role in future. Well, unfortunately, everything that happens to us in life shapes us, molds us, changes our identity. We are most vulnerable in the first two years and then the first seven to eight years. The first two years will determine what we refer to as our attachment style. You may have interviewed some other experts on attachment theory. Do we attach ourselves in adulthood as well as in childhood? to a relationship or in a relationship, do we attach ourselves securely or insecure? If I feel safe and my needs are going to be met, then I can feel confident in a relationship and I can give myself and I can give space to my partner. If I don't feel safe and I feel I'm going to be rejected or I feel I'm going to be abandoned or neglected or I feel my emotional needs are not going to be met, then I will attach myself insecurely. I may be anxious. I may become avoidant, or I may be completely dismissive and say, I don't even need a relationship. Most of that occurs in the first two years based on our relationship with our primary caretaker. In the first seven years, the reason that those are such powerful formative years is because we're operating more off our subconscious mind. Our conscious mind is pretty much summed up by the prefrontal cortex. 
as we get older, the prefrontal cortex develops. This is the part of our brain that we refer to as the executive decision maker. It's the part of our brain that's able or tries to control our emotional impulses. And incidentally, chronic stress shrinks the cells of your prefrontal cortex, which therefore means that you become much more impulsive and less able to control your emotions. So yes, most of the trauma that occurs or that impacts us the most is in the first seven years. But that is not a black and white statement. I have clients who are sexually abused from age eight through to age 13. Very, very common for women, for girls. And the reason that is, is because the girl is very young. She's extraordinarily afraid, truly um, helpless, both psychologically and physically. By the time she gets to age 13 or 15, if it's something that's regular and frequent, she's able to protect herself and she's able to stand up to the guy and say, stop. And I have many clients that have experienced that. So I will never say, look, the only thing that matters is what you experience in the first seven years. But usually those big things that occur in the first seven years are truly impactful. That's, that's a really great breakdown. And, and you also mentioned that trauma can be a real or perceived threat. And so, gosh, that as a parent, I will say just as a parent, that is super interesting to hear because it definitely makes me more aware of how I'm going to engage with my children. But I also think, you know, there's a movement for sleep training infants. And you mentioned that zero to two age gap uh, or not gap, but period where, um, this is really important. And so how is, how are these sleep training methods, you know, things like cry it out, those kinds yeah, of things. I don't believe in that. Never okay. get to that ridiculous <laughs> concept of cry it out because what a child needs above all else is connection. Mm. The child wants to feel that he or she is connected to you, which therefore makes them feel safe. And when they're crying, that's them saying, I have a new need. I have a need, whether the need is to be fed, the need to be held, the need to be changed. There's something that's going on in my body that's uncomfortable. And now the parent comes along and says, let me attend to your needs, whether it's giving you attention, whether it's holding you, hugging you, caressing you, physically comforting you, reassuring you. In those two years, the child is either going to feel like they're getting their emotional needs met or they're not. So this concept of, oh, let the child crowd out. Yeah, that sounds great in theory. And that's okay if you're talking to an adult and you say, look, that adult who's now 21 years of age has to learn on his or her own. Let him do it. <laughs> but in these first years, the child needs the foundation of trust and security. So if you're actually attending to the child's needs and giving them lots and lots of love and lots and lots of hugs and lots and lots of kiss and lots of positive, undivided attention, then the child feels safe. As the child starts to develop, both physically and, I mean, biologically, then you can start to give them a little more space and say, okay, I know you said you're scared. I know you think there's a monster in the bedroom. Let's go take a look. See, there's no monster in the bed. Now go back to sleep and mummy and daddy are right here close by you in the other room. You're going to be fine. That's different to going to the other extreme. And I have this of a client that did this, unfortunately, and then her child ended up with extraordinary anxiety. She would sleep with the child every night instead of sleeping with her husband. 
she would lay in the bed with the child every night, every night, every night. And of course, that child never gets to be able to stand on their own feet. They never get to know how to deal with their own fears, their own anxieties. So it's, it's about a balance. The younger they are, the more help and support they need. As they get older, you give them a little more space. You say to them, come on, you're going to be okay. I understand. Yes, you're allowed to feel whatever you feel. You're allowed to feel scared. Is it warranted? Is there really something to be scared about? You don't say, oh, stop acting like an idiot. Stop being so stupid. Why are you feeling that? You don't negate what they're feeling. You, you allow them to feel what they feel. And then you start, okay, now question this. Is this, is this feeling an accurate representation of reality? But again, I don't know if I've answered your question or if I've gone off at a tangent. No, that's, that's, that's absolutely what I was looking for is that, um, yeah, the more I interview amazing experts like you, the more I look at how a lot of the traditional sleep training or cried out methods have recommended doing certain things for kids. And I'm like, well, gosh, is that trauma? Are we traumatizing them on sub subconscious? Well, you can level? be, you can mm-hmm. be, because if a child is crying every night and then is left in the room alone, and then the lights are turned out, that what is the child experiencing? They're going into extreme fear. And remember mm-hmm. that when I said trauma is the both the physical or the biological and psychological response to a real or perceived threat, that means the body goes into the fight or flight response. That means the body's on hyper alert, hyper vigilance. Mm-hmm. That means that with, an, with repeated stress, the brain's architecture will be impacted. That means, and you can look at this on my website, I've written 40, it's one page, but it's like 40 long pages and 35 infographs explaining the impact of trauma on the body and on health to the extent that we can trace it to lung disease and heart disease, um, all sorts of physical manifestations, all created by trauma, because when you go back to the origins of the trauma, the body is undergoing extreme chronic stress and there's no rest or not enough rest from it. So the child doesn't get to learn to be resilient, doesn't get to learn to bounce back from it. The other thing is there are not two responses. Everyone thinks of just the fight or flight response, but there's four. There's fight. Oh, I can defend myself against the threat. I'll fight back. Uh Oh, I can't defend myself. I better run. Then there is, I'm overwhelmed by this threat. I cannot do anything. And, or I think I'll be safer if I pretend to be dead. I get paralyzed. The last one is where you are almost feigning, feigning, you're acting along. This is the, the, the case of, like I said to you, one of my, many of my clients who were sexually abused from age eight to 13 or 15. And the only way those girls can stay alive is that they go along with the abuse. They're not fighting. They're not resisting. They are going along with it, not because they want it, not because they're enjoying it, but because at some level their mind says, this is the way to stay alive. Mm. So they go along with it till they get to the point where now I can fight back. But again, in all these situations, whenever there is a real or perceived threat, we are creating the, res- the response, which is I must fight back or I must run, or I must do something. And now the body engages the the endocrine system, the amygdala sends responses. There's epinephrine, norepinephrine pumping throughout the body. 
which is fine if you actually have to run or you have to fight. But if you're a child coming home from school every day and you know that there's abusive dad or alcoholic mum and mum might be verbally abusive or like one of my clients just said to me the other day, you know, growing up for her, it was she never knew what mood her mother would be in. So her mother might be quiet, might be disconnected or might yell and scream or might hit. So when that child comes home, instead of coming to a house that's a safe home, a safe place, as they're coming home, their body's already going into hypervigilance, hyperarousal. That's really unhealthy for the body and it affects the architecture of the brain. It affects the development. It affects our entire body because we're constantly releasing chemicals that if we use those chemicals, such as running, fighting, exercising, competing, that's great because we actually metabolize and use those chemicals. But if you're sitting in a car and suddenly you have road rage and you feel your muscles get so tense, you feel this rush going through you and your heart's pumping, that adrenaline is a poison because you're not using it. It's not being used. And now your body's just in this hyper arousal, your cortisol is elevated, et cetera. So um, the point is, yes, you are creating trauma for children when you're not attending to their needs. And children, I think this is an important point, Eric. Children are egocentric. That means they believe the universe revolves around them. They blame themselves for everything that happens. If mum's happy, that's because of me. If dad's angry, that's also because of me. If mum and dad are arguing, that's because of me. If dad's divorcing mum, that's because of me. And dad's not just leaving mum, he's leaving me as well. So children make this constant inaccurate interpretation that they cause and create everything. And so they'll make these subconscious conclusions. My mummy forgot to pick me up at school and I stood there for an hour waiting for her. Therefore, I'm not lovable. Mm. And this is the, these are the ridiculous I say ridiculous because logically we know it's a ridiculous statement. Whatever happened to mum, it doesn't mean she doesn't love you. She may have screwed up big time, but it doesn't mean she doesn't love you because she didn't pick up you from school. But the child says, um, my dad never talks to me. My dad's quiet. There must be something wrong in me. My mum and dad don't connect me. My mum and dad don't show interest in me. My mum and dad don't come to my events. Uh, my mum and dad are comparing me to my siblings. My mum and dad yell at me. Uh, my mum and dad put me down. My mum and dad ignore me. Therefore, there's something wrong with me. I'm not lovable. So from trauma, we also have to look at this bigger umbrella of what we refer to as ACE, adverse mm -hmm. childhood events. And there is an assessment that lists 10, but there's many more than 10. And I'll give you one that not many people talk about. If you grow up in poverty, that's an adverse childhood event. If you grow up in an area where there's racism, that's an adverse childhood event. So there are also adverse childhood events that aren't related necessarily to your parents, even if your parents did or didn't do anything wrong. Mm. Um, so the point is, I just want to make sure I really answer that your question well. Yes, it's very easy to traumatise children. Look for the positive when you need to correct them, encourage them, and stop treating them like they're adults. They are not adults. They're yes. not mini-me's. Their brain hasn't fully developed. Their body hasn't fully developed. They don't have your life experience. They don't have your insights. And, in fact, they have very few insights into anything mm. because they don't have any experience. So they're looking at you. They're watching you. They're copying you. 
they're listening to you even when you think they're not listening to you and they believe what you say, particularly what you say about them. They have individual experiences and then they make inaccurate interpretations, blaming themselves. And number four, they tend to adopt the emotions of the household or the emotions of the dominant parent or the parent with whom they most resonated. Remember, a child is not a mini adult. A child is this, this almost like this empty vessel, other than being full of love, is this empty vessel that's being filled with everything that you're putting into it. What are you putting into it? Your words, your actions, your emotions, your thoughts. Even when you're frustrated, don't say stupid things like, mommy, why are you crying? Because you're, I just can't deal with you anymore. You're just too much to handle. Now, even though that may be the truth, mm-hmm. this child now interprets it as there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. I'm bad. I'm not lovable. I'm not good enough. And I know to you and I, Erin, it sounds like these are extremes, but they're actually not because this is what the subconscious mind does. It makes conclusions from these events and often blaming themselves. So look for ways to encourage your children. And I just said this to a client last week who has a child that he thinks may be on the spectrum. And he says, but I know he can do better and I could do this. And I said, but you're shouting at him. And I said, you know that he's struggling inside his mind, in his brain, he's struggling. When you shout at him, when you yell at him, When you are putting pressure and stress on him, you are not making it easier for him to resolve the problem. And this is is from the book or the work of Sean Acor, The Happiness Advantage. This is a great guy. And if ever you want to watch the TED talk, it's hilarious. (laughs) But in his decades of research into the brain, he basically found that we perform at an optimal state when our brain is in a happy state. We perform better if we are happy than if we're in a neutral, negative, or stressed state. So if you have to answer an exam or you have to do a report or you have to finish the tax taxes, you will not do better putting extreme pressure or getting angry or saying, come on, let's do it. It doesn't work that way. Your brain has, is better at problem solving. It's better at memory recall. You have a wider peripheral vision all if you're in, if your brain is in a happy state. So do things with joy, do things with more with happiness. And what I said to my client, I reminded him of that. And I said to him, you're not helping him when you're frightening him. You're not helping him when he feels disconnected to you, when he feels isolated. Sit down with him and encourage him. Even if you have to say to him, look, I know you're struggling. What's happening for you? Because I know you can do better than this. And then if and and sometimes children will even bang themselves they'll punch themselves they'll slap themselves they'll hit their head because they feel that frustration and often mm-hmm. they're also feeling your frustration and and i'll share this Aaron. i just said this with another client a few weeks ago who was having a problem with her daughter i don't recall if her daughter's five or seven but her daughter does this where she hits herself and and she's in the corner and she's really frustrated and overwhelmed and getting into a tantrum and i said look Sit with her. Don't let her bring up a negative response in you because she's going to sense that. Sit with her. If she starts hitting herself, just hold her hand and say, no, you don't need to do that. It's okay. I said, say to her, it's okay. I'm here. I'm here with you. It's okay. You're safe. It's okay. All they're looking for is reassurance so that they can learn to practice moving through the emotions 
quickly. And I said, the most important thing for you is do not take those emotions on. If you're taking on her out of control state, her anxiety, and you're anxious, now she has no hope of calming down because she will sense that in you. Mm. But if you sit there and you're very calm and you say, it's okay, I'm here. You're right. What's happening? It's okay. I'm here. I said, I promise you, if you do that, it'll work. She did that. And now she says her daughter moves through the emotions much faster and is no longer hitting herself. Another example is I was on the beach with some friends and I see this little girl, Eva, and I think she might be, she was born around the hurricane, which was 2017. I'm in Miami right now. So Mm -hmm. she's five years of age. And she's crying and she's because so-and-so won't let her use the toy and she goes to her dad and her dad's there. And I just go up to her and I said, I said, well, what happened? She said, so-and-so won't let me use my toy. I said, yeah, that's really bad, isn't it? I said, that's so bad. I said, I'm so sorry. And I said, you're really disappointed, right? She goes, yes. And I go, I understand you're crying and you really wanted to play with that toy, didn't you? Yes. And I said, is it your toy? She said, no, it's her toy. I said, oh, it's her toy. I said, but you really wanted to play with it, didn't you? She said, yes. I said, do you think she'll let you play with it after? And she said, yeah, maybe. And then I don't know what else I said to her, but it was just that same line. And suddenly (laughs) she goes from the crying, puts the smile on, runs to her other friend and says, come on, let's go and play, and goes and plays with the other friend who had the toy she wanted. And, And I said to the father, look, this applies not just to your daughter, but to your wife and to your mother and every woman in your life and everyone else, just validate what they're feeling. And then you can redirect. And he says, this is so bizarre because I do this at work, but I never thought of doing it with my children. I go, how could you not think of doing it with your children? (laughs) Forget about the people at work. I mean, yes, don't forget about them. But seriously, this is the priority. I said, all of us want our emotions validated. Validate what your daughter's feeling. She's angry. She's frustrated. And I think I may have used the word sad. I go, yeah, I know you're sad. I understand you're sad. It makes sense. You really wanted to play with that toy and you're excited. Yeah. Now, once you've done that, suddenly they're also understanding what they're feeling, which they didn't before. They're just, they've got these feelings. They've got these emotions. They can't label them. And scientific research shows that when you can actually label and identify your emotions, they have less power over you. Because sometimes we want to know what we're really feeling. It's not just anger. Beneath the anger might be frustration, helplessness, a sense of betrayal, a sense of disappointment, etc. So the deeper you can dig and become more self-aware, the greater control you have over your emotions. Yeah. Wow. That is so good. There, there's so much there to unpack, but I do want to pause on the adverse childhood events because all of these things that you're sharing about how our kids are affected by our emotions and our tone and all of that. Um, And then you combine that with any kind of true adverse childhood events that they experience, this plays a role in their physical health later on. How is that? Well, it's, it's, it's really not that complicated because what's happening is if you go back to, and I'll just mention these traumas or these adverse events. So you understand one can be a parent who has a mental illness. The other can be a parent or someone in your family going to jail. It can be physical abuse, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse. It can be drug use. It can be being bullied at school. It can be a lack of nutrition, not being given enough food. All of these things create, again, a response, a biological response in the body or a physiological response. And that response is 
fight, flight, freeze. That means that you are so scared, your heart is racing, your blood is pumping really fast, there's adrenaline moving throughout your body. And now instead of your body being in the, in the what we refer to as the rest and digest state, it's in the fearful state. It's in the state of I must, that I'm being threatened. That's the difference between the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. So the parasympathetic nervous system is where we say, oh, I feel very calm. Now, mm, I've really enjoyed that meal. Let's just sit and be calm. And there's my body digesting the food and my body's healing. But if I'm in a constant stress state, what happens? Suddenly I can't digest the food. I get pains in my stomach. Um, I get an imbalance in the in the the chemicals being secreted in my stomach for digestion. I can get an ulcer. I can get an irritable. I can have irritable bowel syndrome, mm -hmm. all created by an imbalance, not just in the thoughts, but in the, the chemistry of my body. The same thing happens to a child. With, this, with these adverse events, with this trauma, with this constant fear, instead of the body being in a state where it's growing and developing in a healthy um, pattern, these chemicals are affecting the architecture of the brain and they're affecting the development of the brain and the child is afraid to connect and it works on multiple levels. So ultimately what happens is your endocrine system is being, is being put off. It's out of balance. And you've got all these chemicals that are rushing through your body that you're not using for, for, in their intended use. Again, I'll just say this, you know, if, if you are going to run in a race, your body's going to release certain chemicals to help you to run fast. If you're playing sport, the same thing. But if you are just sitting in a chair and you get this really bad news or you're in a car and you're driving and suddenly, you know, you slam on the brakes and you felt this fear that you didn't even have enough time to actually process what has your body done? You touch your heart, your heart's racing like crazy. And you felt your muscles get really tense quickly because your body just released all these chemicals ready for you to run or fight. And they're not healthy for you on a regular basis. Again, if you're using them for sport, for the gym, that's fine. But not, not just in a normal state. So the more that you are exposed to trauma and adverse events, the more negative the impact will be on your body. And I can send you some infographs if you want to include them in the show notes. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is so helpful. I think that it's interesting. I, I work as a health coach at a counseling center and you would not be surprised by this at all, but I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that many of the women that I, and I see majority women, um, many of the women that I see were diagnosed with autoimmune disease conditions right after experiencing a very traumatic event or while grieving or, and yeah. there's a connection. So we have this concept that we're not a human with mind, emotions and heart and soul, but we're just a machine. So it's okay. If we get angry, it's okay. If we scream, it's okay. If we cry, uh, it's okay. If we have all this trauma, cause we're just a machine. No, you're not a machine. You're this organism that's impacted by your thoughts, your feelings, your fears, your desires, your fantasies, your hopes, your aspirations, and above all, your relationships and your connections to other human beings. So in a time of grieving, you want to connect with people. You want to turn to your social network. You don't want to isolate. So I'm not surprised because if you look at the history of ACE, 
adverse childhood events assessment. They call it a test. The history of that is a group of doctors in, I think it was San Francisco in the 80s. And it was a clinic where all these women were coming and they, and I think it was a clinic that was focusing on obesity. I have all the information on my trauma page on my website, the history. But all these women were coming and they were all experiencing, they were all obese. And what he found was that some of them were doing really well, but then they'd go back. They would do really, really well. And then some of them would just drop out. And I don't know what's, oh, I think he accidentally asked a wrong question. And he asked the wrong question twice when he wanted to say, when he was asking a question about sex and he said, what was your first sexual experience? And this woman said age four. Mm. And it wasn't his intention. I don't recall his, the doctor's intention in the question. It's an MD, incidentally. And then he realized, oh, this woman was raped, at, was molested at age four. Then he started asking more and more questions of his clients and then realized all of these women who had all these health issues, mm-hmm. a lot of them pertaining to obesity, had all experienced trauma in childhood. Then he, he got up in a, in a conference and he, he presented this. And, of course, all the other and I'll call them bozos, went, oh, this is BS, this can't be real, there can't be a connection. But someone there, and I think it was from, the, it was from Kaiser Permanente, um, someone from another institution said to him, look, I believe in what you're saying, and I have the way that we can actually do this. We can actually assess this. So they went ahead and studied thousands of people, and they, in their present health state, and studied their history, and then they saw not just a correlation, but a real cause and effect. And that's how we've been able to say people that experience trauma in their, in their childhood can have all of these negative health impacts later in life. Mm. Yeah. But it also, let me also say it can yeah. be reversed. Now, I'm not talking about lung disease being reversed, but the, the actual experience, the trauma can be healed and resolved. Which is what I definitely want to make sure that we have time to get into is your, your technique before that. I have to say this though, cause you mentioned, you know, not all ACEs are actually listed on the assessment because I went, you know, when I learned about this a few years ago, I went in and it's like, well, I'm going to take this and see what my ACE number is. <laughs> and what's interesting, they didn't ask me about two significant traumas in my life. One of which I, my lungs collapsed 75% when I was a toddler and I still have some medical trauma from that, from being held down and, you know, strong hands trying to heal me and pump me full with whatever they did back then in the eighties. And then the other one is I, I experienced, I watched my grandpa die when I was nine. Those are two pretty traumatic things that made me feel pretty helpless, powerless for a long time and put me in freeze mode and dissociative states for a very long time but that's not listed. So there are, and I think we, when, and for anybody who's listening to this going, well, my trauma is really not as bad as sexual abuse, or my trauma really isn't as bad as physical abuse. If it is affecting you and your body, it's, it's, it's a trauma. You know, if you're feeling the effects of that, it's a trauma. If it's keeping you from living in the state that you want to live, it it is trauma. So, so there are two points here. One is in every traumatic experience, the, the primary emotion, not the only emotion, there's, there can be 50 emotions experienced, but the primary emotion that's experienced other than fear is helplessness. And you did say mm. helplessness. That's number one. Number two, uh, I have a client who said something similar to me. She, she came to me because she had body dysmorphia and an eating disorder. 
and she had traveled and she'd been to war-torn countries and said well how can i even look at my situation my situation is nothing compared to what these kids are experiencing you know their their families are being killed and they're, they're watching people die and be injured i said yes that's exactly true but when you were five years of age you weren't comparing yourself to those children over there were you you were experiencing what you're experiencing and that's what matters the point is, if you compare yourself, there's always someone better, always someone worse. All that matters in a very similar way to what you said is, what happened to you and how did it affect you? And if you think what happened isn't important, what matters more is how did it affect you? So I have a client who at age eight is performing really badly at school. His teacher, who's already very angry and negative and yells, drags him out of the classroom, physically drags him out of the classroom, humiliating him and screams at him. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? What she doesn't, because she isn't trained, because she's taking it personally rather than saying, look, you're not performing well at school. What's happening at home? Instead of asking that question, instead of expressing empathy, she expresses judgment, not realizing this kid at home was being sexually abused. Mm -hmm. But aside of that, this experience on its own, being dragged out of the classroom at age eight, being humiliated in front of his um, friends at school, he ends up it ends up becoming a traumatic experience because he's afraid because she's shouting and yelling at him. He's eight years of age, number one. Number two, he makes all these conclusions of why even bother? It's hopeless. I'm not going to try because he can feels he doesn't feel safe at home and now he's at school and he doesn't feel safe. So the point is what I do when I work with clients is we look at the experience and we look at it from every angle. This is truly looking at something from a 360-degree angle. What emotions did this child feel? What conclusions and interpretations did this child experience or create or make? You've got to look at it from the child's perspective, not the adult's perspective. The adult says, yeah, look, it was one time. I'm sorry this happened. Yeah, that's fine. Get over it. Your teacher is not going to yell at you again. I've spoken to it. No, it doesn't work that way because you don't know what subconscious conclusions this child made. You talked about traumas that aren't listed in ACE. ACE is, like every assessment, limited. It's just a foundation. It's a starting point. There are 10 things, but there are at least another five. You talked about individual experiences, the death of someone. Now, I, I, don't, I thought ACE might have the death of a family member. Maybe it doesn't include the death of a grandparent. But also it can be racism. It can be poverty. Um, it can be religious in the sense of if you grow up in a country where women are held down in a certain way mm. or men are repressed if they are going to be beaten or murdered if they're homosexual, then these can also be traumas depending mm. on what they've experienced. There's, so there's social and cultural adverse events. There can be racist events, adverse events. There can be financial adverse events. You've just got to look at it all. And it's not about looking at someone going, oh, poor, poor me or poor, poor you. Let me just step inside because someone, I'm on the balcony. It's not just <laughs> about having pity on people. It's about developing empathy and compassion and finding out how were you affected as a child by this event. And it, everyone can be affected. Two children can be sitting on the road watching a cat cross the road. The, get, the cat gets run over. One child laughs. The other child gets traumatized because we have different ways of looking at things too. Mm -hmm. So you got to take into account 
the individual, their temperament, their outlook, um, their, their style, their personality, the way that they view life. And you, anyone that's listening to this that's a parent knows, if you've got more than one child, that one child can be really easy. Another child can be slow to warm up. The third child might be difficult, quite difficult. And the fourth child might be a blend. And yet they're all your children, but they're all different. <laughs> and so you've got to look at the individual. That's why I say to parents, sit down and get to know your child. Don't compare them. Don't think because Sally's this way, her sister's going to be the same or her brother's going to be the same. They could all be different or they could all be very similar. They could be similar in certain areas and then very different in other areas. And maybe one of them is much more sensitive than the other. Maybe one of them feels things much more deeply. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. It just means that's how they are. Maybe one of them wants to be the boss constantly. So you've got to give them an area and say, okay, that's your room. You're the boss of your room, but this is the kitchen. Uh-uh. You're not the boss here. I am. That's your area. There. You want to be dominant? Go dominate your, dominate your bedroom. And then you might have another child that's very submissive. So you've got to get to know your children so you can work with them based on seeing the world through their eyes rather than trying to get them to see the world through your eyes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let's talk about your, your SRTT therapy, subconscious rapid transformation technique. How does this help people? You said you sometimes only see people a few sessions. Is that right? Yeah. I don't make people come every week and, and sit there and just let them talk for an hour and a half or whatever time is allocated. And then say, yes, I'll see you next week and I'll see you for the rest of your life. Instead, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> my, instead, my therapy focuses on getting what is it you want that you don't yet have. You want to feel different. You want to act different. You want to relate different. You want better relationships. You want to feel different about yourself. You want to behave different. Maybe there's certain behaviors you want to let go of. So we identify what is your objective? What is it you want that you don't yet have? Maybe you want to feel different. Maybe you want to do things differently. Maybe you even want to have something. And, if I, if it, and I ask you, okay, so if you had this amount of money, what would it give you? And then we'll find out what the real motivation is. Because I had an author who wanted to, who was already famous, but wanted to become so famous. Why? <laughs> because at age four, her mother answers a knock at the door and there's one of her friends. And she turns to, says to her friend as she signals to her child and says, this is my little mistake. Now, both of them laugh because they recognize what it means. They go, well, it was an unplanned child. But the child thinks plant mistake means there's something wrong with me. I'm not wanted. I'm not loved spends the rest of her life wanting to become famous and become validated by everything outside of it. So we identify what is it you want that you don't yet have, and we go straight to the root cause. And I gave you an example. We go to the root cause. In this case, it's something that mum said. Um, in the case of someone else, it's being humiliated at age eight. In the case of someone else, it's, um, it's being ignored as a child. That's someone else, it's the, it's the result of a divorce. Um, for someone else, it can be moving multiple times. It's really, really destabilizing when a child moves constantly from one house or one school or one town to another or another state or another country because children need security and stability and routine. So I get to the root cause of the issue. And um, it's turned out that a lot of my work is focusing on trauma, but not everything is necessarily traumatic. It can just be an adverse childhood event. And contrary to what everyone else teaches, I do not believe in making you relive the pain, reliving the pain and telling you cry, 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 let it out, doesn't heal. 
because if it did, every person that cries every night for a month would be suddenly miraculously healed, but they're not. And I remember this happened for me when I was 19. The first time I moved away from home, I was crying for night after night. It was the first. I was even shocked that I was crying. I was like, I didn't even like my parents at the time, and here I am crying. <laughs> um, but that didn't heal me. It didn't change anything. In fact, what I was actually crying about was helplessness. Often crying can actually be, it can be a sense of release, but sometimes it can also be about helplessness. So sometimes we're just crying because we feel so overwhelmingly helpless. Reliving the pain doesn't heal you of anything because you can't let go of the pain whilst you are overwhelmed by the pain or whilst you're in the pain. So if you're really, really angry or really, really sad, you're not going to overcome the anger whilst you're in the anger because we need to access your brain from a different way. So what I do is let's, let's take the example of this little girl at age four. Her mom says, you know, this is my mistake. And I say to the client, okay, with your eyes closed, when you think back to that old memory, where do you see the little girl? Oh, I'm standing. No, 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 not you. You're, you're on the phone talking to me. Where, where do you see the little girl? Oh, she's in the hallway um, with her mum. Okay. Can you imagine going up to her? Yes. Can you imagine connecting with her? Yes. When you look in her eyes, what do you see and feel? And there comes the emotion. It might be sadness, fear, anger, disappointment, whatever it is. So then we work with the image of that child. And the process, which is fluid, but very, very deep and thorough, I identify all the emotions that the child felt. We validate those emotions. I do another process to release the emotions that are in the body. So I do look at the body of the child. Because if the child's um, got in a lot of sadness, I'll say, where in her body does, does little Mary feel that? Where in her body is that old sadness? She might say in her heart, and I'll say, does it have a color? And it might be or it might not be. Say, yes, what color is it? She might say it's blue. So and then I'll say, and why is that blue sadness in her heart or in her stomach? And then they'll give me more insights. I'm just asking the question. And then I'll say, how would little Mary like to let go now of all of that old blue sadness from her heart? Now, sometimes they'll say she'd love to. Sometimes they'll say um, um, she's afraid. Or, no, she doesn't want to. And I'll say, okay, why doesn't she want to? What's causing the resistance? Then we'll look at it. And sometimes it'll be, that's all I've ever known. Wow. That to me is something that's very common. That's all I've ever known. And then I say, yes, that makes sense. Because the sadness or the anger or the fear or the betrayal became part of her identity. Then we work on changing the identity. And then we also pull out all the beliefs. What are all the, what are all the beliefs and conclusions that this child made? And we work on shifting those beliefs. We get to help the client to forgive themselves because everyone always blames themselves, whatever was done to them. They always think it's their fault at a subconscious level. And then we also get to forgive the person that did whatever they did or failed to do. Now, I'm giving you a very, very simple version of that. Mm -hmm. um, each session is about 90 minutes because we're going that deep. Wow. And I have clients that have done all these other therapies and sometimes they'll say, I, I thought I resolved this, but I've never gone so deep. And I didn't realize that these are all the emotions I experienced. And I didn't realize how it affected me. Like today with um, this client who experienced sexual abuse. And I helped I help to say to him, because this child is experiencing sexual abuse, but he also has physical sensations of pleasure. Mm -hmm. 
which is really hard for anyone to accept. And it's hard for even people that have never experienced to accept that a child that's being sexually abused by his brother is also going to still have an erection and still have an orgasm. And women go through the same thing, that they can be raped and still have an orgasm. It doesn't mean you want it or ask for it. That's the body doing what the body does. Mm. So the stimulation creates a physical sensation that can then result in an orgasm. And so for this client, one of the, the results of this was that because of this conflict and the shame and the guilt that he carried for the act, as well as for having feeling pleasure, he then hides his sexuality. Mean, mm. Meaning he just doesn't, he just, he hides and he denies his own sexuality, his desire for sex, his desire for sex with a woman. So then mm. we work on that. So all these things get uncovered and it's 90 minutes of very deep work. And then I record the sessions and I send the, the, the session recording to the client. I say, please listen back to it in another two or three days because you'll go through the process again and you'll learn so much and you'll hear things that you didn't hear and you'll pick up on things you didn't pick up the first time. So it's a very thorough process that I do. And 90 something percent of my clients are over the phone, not even Zoom, because you don't wow. need to be looking. You just need to be laying down or on a sofa, or on a rocking chair, wherever you feel comfortable. Um, and I work by listening to the words and the tonality and even the sounds you make. So if, if I say, um, and has Johnny fully forgiven his mother? And there's a pause and I go, okay, that's a no, hmm. because I hear the pause. It's a long pause. Or if the client goes, I go, okay, you just sighed. What were you thinking and feeling? And now they'll bring up something that they weren't going to reveal otherwise. So it's very much about being in tune with the client. You know, maybe one day we'll, you and I will do another um, podcast and I'll actually demonstrate the technique for you. Yeah, I think we might have to, because this information is just, I'm, I, I have a thousand more questions to ask you. <laughs> But it, it works because we're working at a subconscious level. Mm. We're not labeling. I'm not, I don't label you. And ultimately, I'm helping you to do something that very few people do. And that's to help you to get to the place to have compassion for yourself mm. and forgiveness for the other person. Compassion for yourself includes forgiveness for yourself. And the focus is first and foremost on having compassion for yourself and forgiving yourself. People think Oh, you can't be compassionate to someone else unless you're compassionate yourself. That's not true either. You think of your life, think of whoever's listening. You can be sometimes really kind to other people and really mean to yourself. Very true. That's possible. Very true. Um, but interestingly, whether you believe in the Bible or not, just this teaching is a very interesting teaching. Love thy neighbor as thyself, which means love yourself, treat yourself well, love your neighbor, treat your neighbor well. The way you treat yourself is the way you should treat your neighbor. So let's start with you. Let's focus on you. And when you are able to experience real compassion for yourself, it's not a word, it's an action, then it's much easier when I say, okay, now let's work on the relationship with mum with the ultimate goal of forgiving mum. I never make people forgive. I don't tell them you have to forgive. I say you don't have to forgive, but when you're ready, you will. And then, interestingly, they'll get to that place organically. I'm guiding them, but I'm not telling them to do it. And the image that they have of their mother or father, that means the visual image in their mind, will visually change. Wow. Once, once we are 
going through this process, I don't say to them, I'll say, now, how does your mum look? Because remember, this is just with their eyes closed and they're envisioning mum. And maybe she's gone from being angry to her head's dropping down. Okay. And then it might go to, she's feeling sorry. Why is she feeling sorry? Because she didn't intend to hurt the little girl. And then it might be to, she's smiling. Why is she smiling? Um, because she wants the best for me. So everything is just a reflection of what's already happening mm. in our head. Everything just happens in our head. That doesn't mean real things don't happen outside of our head, but most of what happens happens inside our head. That's the way we perceive the world. Yeah, that's incredible. That makes me even emotional kind of thinking about that, how we can change the way that that we look at other people by going through this process, because I think that's where a lot of people get stuck is, is they feel like their parents abandoned them in this situation or didn't care or didn't, or whatever it is. Um, that's absolutely beautiful. So, um, that's incredible work. I'm, I would love to ask you more questions, but we are out of time. So I will ask, um, one question and that is, you know, the name of the show is sparking wholeness. So if you could give one piece of advice to spark someone toward wholeness, what would it be? Remember that you, that life is experienced mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Mentally is your thoughts. Emotions are the emotions you experience and the relationships you have with other people. Physical is your body and everything that's tangible. Spiritual is your connection either to a higher power or your purpose and meaning. Something that gives you real inspiration and makes you have better feelings towards other people. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that seems to be a theme that has been popping up with, I'm so fortunate to get guests like you who believe in this holistic approach. And I, I appreciate your words there. I think that is so meaningful. So tell me where can people find your books, learn more about you and your work or or work with you if, if that's something that they're inspired to do? Well, let me first say that I encourage everyone to do whatever helps you. And I don't say just come to me for therapy. I say, if you want to do yoga, do yoga. If you want to do acupuncture, sometimes I'll say to my clients, listen, you need to go and get a massage. You need to have someone doing something nice for you. Sometimes I'll say, please go out for a walk. Or I'll say, you know, go do some meditation, go do some yoga. Or you don't need intense exercise. You need to do some gentle walking and look at, connect to the trees and the flowers. So, First thing is the most, that's really being holistic, saying, look at everything you do in your life. I'm not the only answer. I'm a big part of what's going to help you. That's true. (laughs) But look at your whole life. What are you eating? What are you exposing yourself to mentally? What else are you doing? So that's that. Um, PatrickWannis.com. And you can um, book a session through there by going to services, uh, book a session, phone consultation. I work with people all over the world. I have clients in Uh, London, Paris, uh, Spain, um, Russia, literally all over the world, Australia, Canada, and 90% of them, I don't even know what they look like. (laughs) I've never met them, but they get the help that they want. And that's what matters. And I do have therapists that refer clients to me. That's awesome. Well, thank you again for being on the show. I think we will have to do a part two at some point because this, this has been the time passed way too fast for me. So I appreciate you taking the time to share your knowledge. You're very welcome, Erin. Thanks for the opportunity. The tiniest spark leads to the biggest blaze. And I hope that today's episode sparks you on a journey to healing and wholeness. 
Thanks for listening to Sparking Wholeness. For more information on what I do and my coaching programs, or maybe just to reach out and say, hey, find me at sparkingwholeness.com or on Instagram at sparkingwholeness. Have a fabulous week.